Welcome to Simply by Grace, a podcast of Grace Life Ministries with founder and director, Dr. Charlie Bing. This podcast and other helpful resources can be found at our website, gracelife.org. Now, here's Dr. Bing. I'm going to be in John chapter 6 for my last message, and uh, we'll cover a lot of the chapter, but just hit some of the, the high points. And... Um, we're going to uh, introduce a discussion about discipleship as, as we go and talk a little bit about what a disciple is, but we won't go far into the subject because uh, that's a whole other series that I do. So let's have a word of prayer together. Father, we remind ourselves that this is to, a, a good day of rest for us and um, that our rest uh, has been physical in many ways, but, you know, Lord, it has been spiritual as well. We've been refreshed here by fellowship and by your word and uh, by encouraging testimonies and what we've heard. We just thank you for this. And now again, Lord, refresh us and, and keep us uh, refreshed by your word as we open it together. We ask this and pray in the name of our Savior, Jesus. Amen. There was a man who was a real football fanatic, and he obtained some coveted tickets to the Super Bowl game. He paid hundreds of dollars for them. And he got one for, he, he had, in fact, he had a couple tickets. And um, on the day of the game, he was sitting there watching the game, uh, but the seat next to him was empty. And someone behind him said, uh, about halftime, said, <clears throat> excuse me, sir, but um, I noticed it's a seat next to you. Yeah, this is a Super Bowl game. There's people all over the world that would die to be here, paying $1,000 for scalp tickets outside, and there's an empty seat next to you. And he said, I don't understand that. And the man said, well, I had bought a ticket for my wife, and then my wife died. And the man says, oh, I'm so sorry to hear that. Well, couldn't you have given the ticket to one of your friends? He said, yeah, but they wanted to go to the funeral. <laughs> That's what you call a fanatic. You know the definition of... You know where the word fan comes from now, the word fanatic. I'm not fanatical about sports. I, I, I force myself to follow the World Series so I don't look like a dummy. I think I know that the Marlins and the Yankees are playing. And I force myself to follow football enough so that when the Super Bowl comes around, I know who's playing. Uh, but I'm not crazy about it. But one sport I really do enjoy is soccer. I've played soccer most of my life. There you go. played soccer most of my life and uh, just joined the majority of the world that plays soccer. Right? Football. And, um, and I have to admit that, uh, that football, you know, some have been curious enough to tune in on TV, I mean soccer, and, and, and watch it. And, it. and to them, it is the most boring thing to watch in the world. You can watch a whole game and it ends up being 0 0 1 0. And I sympathize with them. And I say, you know, when they tell me that, they say, it's so boring. I say, well, it is, yeah, unless you've played it and you know what's going on. And uh, so they're curious enough to tune in, but not interested enough. There are those who are convinced, though, that uh, soccer is a good sport, and they might follow, you know, their team through the up through the World Cup series, like the you know the women's team went all up up to the uh, semifinals, I believe, and uh, just keep track of that. I've no more followed that more than I followed the World Series recently. And then the, those are then there are those who are really committed to the sport, fanatical about it. And I'll tell you how committed I am to it. I still play. I play uh, on Sunday afternoons. In fact, my team just finished playing about an hour ago, and I just called them when I took a walk and called them and see what, how we did, and we did terrible. I play on an over 30 team, over th 30 co-ed team, just for fun on Sundays. Uh, the games get intense, but it's just for fun, and, uh, and I'm way over 30. 
if you have a guess. So, um, but the problem is today what they said is that they got really uh, whooped bad. <clears throat> that we scored one goal and that was it. And the other team we played was an under 30 team because the under 30 team didn't have enough teams, so they combined them at the last minute with the over 30 teams. So we had recruited all over 30 people, and this team's been recruiting all under 30 people, and they put us together today, and everybody on that younger team scored a goal against us, they said. It was very embarrassing. So at those times, it doesn't become much fun. So there are people in the world who are curious about sports. There are people in the world who are convinced about at least their team or America's team. And then there's those who are the raving fanatics that paint their face, you know, green and yellow and things like this in support of their team. And in many areas of life, we find these three groups of people, the curious, the convinced, and the committed. And I want to show you how that applies to uh, our relationship to Jesus Christ. When it comes to all the people of the world, they're basically in these categories, those who are curious, those who are convinced, and those who are committed. I think we see that somewhat in John chapter 6. And um, just to paint a little context, in John chapter 6, it begins with the miracle of the feeding of the 5,000. It's an important context for what, all the things that Jesus says later. He feeds the people fish and bread by the sea. And uh, then the disciples go to the other side of the Sea of Galilee, and Jesus um, goes over across the sea as well. But he does it a little different. He walks and uh, then gets in the boat. And on the following day, it says in verse 22, where I want to pick up the narrative, the people were over there, and they saw that there was uh, no boat there except that the one that the disciples had entered, and Jesus had not entered. And uh, they're wondering how he got over there um, because the disciples had gone away alone. However, the other boats came from Tiberias near the place where they ate bread after the Lord had given thanks. And when the people saw Jesus was not there nor his disciples, they also got into boats and came to Capernaum seeking Jesus. And they found him on the other side of the sea. And they said to him, Rabbi, when did you come here? Now Jesus said to them, Most assuredly I say to you, you seek me not because you saw the signs, but because you ate of the loaves and were filled. Jesus kind of called them on their motives for following him. You're not really interested in what my signs are pointing to or saying about me. What you're really interested in is another fish sandwich. That's why you're following me. And these people were following him, not out of a sense of spiritual need, out of, out of what we might call just nothing more than a felt need. And they, they were hungry. Or here was, here was a guy that uh, was very unusual. Uh, their motive was food. I think uh, missionaries uh, are very familiar with the term rice Christians. Those who cooperate with Christians, uh, feign Christianity, profess Christianity, just so they can get what the missionaries have. We see that when we go overseas quite often. So they came because of a felt need. And you know, that's not uh, too far from what we see today in many situations. Those who uh, show up at church... Um, be, not because of any great spiritual hunger or thirst, but simply because they have good programs for the kids or they want their kids to be around a good influence or they just feel lonely and they want to have some friends. I mean, some actually show up for business contacts or because it's a pretty building even, and they're just curious as to what's inside. I checked my messages uh, yesterday, and I had a message on my answering machine at church answering answer machine from a woman. She called a couple times before. And she, and she keeps asking, when's your new building going to be ready? <laughs> and last time I talked to her, and I said, well, you know, we're expecting to be in before Christmas, but you can come visit us anytime. You don't have to wait till we get the new building, you know. So here she was calling again. When's the new building going to be ready? I guess she's just curious, wants to see what's in there. 
We saw that uh, when in 91 when war was declared against Iraq. People came to the churches. They wanted to know, what does this uh, have to do with prophecy and things like that? And then after a while, they faded away. After 9-11, every pastor will tell you that the church, the church attendance swelled because people were wondering what's going on. They were feeling a need for comfort. And they came and they were comforted and they got over it. And they, now they're home again. They're staying home on Sunday mornings. I think every pastor sees that. So there are those who are attracted for other, other than spiritual reasons. When I was a, a teenager, I was 16 years old, and I was on the track team at high school. And I remember one day going in after track practice, and, um, and in the locker room, somebody had hung all these posters. I know, now know who it was, one another one of the track members who was a Christian. And what it was, it was inviting people to uh, their church on Friday night for all-you-can-eat pizza and to hear so-and-so, I think, a speaker. So uh, I just kind of kept that in the back of my head and just got my driver's license. Friday night rolled around, and me and the gang kind of, you know, hanging around the neighborhood wondering, oh, what do you want to do? Hey, I happen to remember this poster I saw in school. It said, oh, you can eat pizza Friday night. Why don't we go get some pizza? Pizza and teens is a good mix, you know? Okay, so we got in the car, and we went over to the church and uh, walked up to the church. A man greeted us at the door. He said, hey, we're here to get some pizza. Well, you got to come in and listen to the speaker first. Okay, so we looked at each other. That's what it takes to get pizza. So we went into the church, sat down, and listened to a uh, an evangelist. I remember his name is Freddie Gale. Back back then, that was about seventies, early about nineteen seventy something like that. He wore a white suit. No, it was a lavender suit, white shoes, and white belt. That's what it was. That's how the evangelist dressed. I can remember that. Freddie Gale. Now, Freddie Gale. <laughs> In fact, I met his son not long ago. His son's doing evangelism also. He's a good man and everything. And he, had a, he had a pretty good and interesting message, and we sat and listened to that. At the end of the message, he got up and he said, Now, all of, I want to ask you a question. Are you sure you're going to heaven? And I want all those who are not sure you're going to heaven to raise your hand. And I said, No harm in that. Raised my hand. Looked around. My friends raised their hand. He said, Now, I want all of you who raised your hand to stand up. And we looked at each other. Well, that's what it takes to get pizza. Okay, so we. <laughs> now I want all of you who stood up to come on down, and we're going to take you downstairs to the basement, and we're going to talk to you a little bit. So we went through the whole thing, and they got us in little groups, and they read Bible verses to us, and prayed with us. You know, and my friend and I are, we're just kind of looking at each other and giggling. They separated the guys and the girls, and we're kind of giggling at each other. But we left the church that day. And we finally got our cold pizza, but <laughs> it was cold. We left no more saved than we were when we walked in. Because we weren't there for the right reason. We weren't there seeking to fit, fill any spiritual need. We are there just to get pizza and nothing more than that. People can go to church or be curious about Jesus and not really understand their real need. But what they really need is the gospel. And Jesus realized that. And that's why he says in verse 27, Don't labor for the food which perishes, but for the food which endures to everlasting life, which the Son of Man will give you, because God the Father has set his seal on him. Don't labor for food which perishes, but for everlasting life. He's not telling them to work for everlasting life. He's just saying, look, if you're really going to go to all this trouble, don't do it for food. Do it to find out about eternal life. NIV probably translates it a little different. But their response to him, that he was trying to introduce them to their need for everlasting life, which is the need of all those who are curious. They may come because of a felt need, but their real need, of course, is eternal life. And their response to him is interesting. In verse 28, they say to him, What shall we do that we may do, that we may work the works of God? 
Now, these Jews who followed Jesus were conditioned by the Pharisaical Jewish system in which they were raised to think, okay, well, here's another man with another list of do's and don'ts, so tell us what's your list of things to do that we may do the works of God. But Jesus surprises them with his answer. He says, this is the work of God, period. There's only one thing. Believe in him whom he sent. And they must be thinking, that's not a work. He was just using the play on words, matching their language. Forget the works. Forget the list of do's and don'ts. This is the only thing you have to do. Believe on the one that he sent. So he uses their words and kind of throws it back at them, telling them about eternal life. Now that launches a discussion with them about uh, manna uh, sent from heaven and how that was a sign from God in the wilderness. And Jesus picks up on that and tells them, uh, verse 35, I'm just going to skip a little bit to make some progress through the chapter. I am the bread of life. He who comes to me shall never hunger, and he who believes in me shall never thirst. Jesus is saying that I'm the answer to your spiritual hunger and the answer to your spiritual thirst. Whoever comes to me. Remember I said that that term comes to me is an evangelistic invitation. And I think that you'll find it consistently that comes to me is a reference to an invitation to salvation, whereas come after me is a reference to discipleship. And we'll talk about the distinction. But he goes on like, in, for example, in verse 47, whoever I, most surely I say to you, he who believes in me has everlasting life. It's very clear what Jesus is trying to communicate to them. Faith brings eternal life. And then he goes on to talk about verse 48, I am the bread of life. And verse 54, whoever eats my flesh and drinks my blood has eternal life, and I will raise him up on the last day. Now, we know that eating and drinking here does not picture the communion of the Lord's Supper or the Eucharist, as, as some might claim, because he equates eating and drinking with believing. Eat and drink, have everlasting life. Eat, drink, I mean, have, believe and have everlasting life. It's very clear from the flow of the argument and the context that he's referring, just using it as an analogy for faith. And it is a good one because we're trusting whatever we eat, we're trusting to sustain us and to give us life. We draw life from our food and our drink. And so Jesus is saying, you want to trust me like you trust food and drink. I think that's why he chooses that illustration for one of the reasons anyway. But you know, when he talked about their spiritual needs in such a way, they didn't like that. And so in verse 60, it says, therefore, many of his disciples, when, he, when they heard this, said, this is a hard saying, who can understand it? They didn't like it, and the result in verse 66 is that from that time, many of his disciples went back and walked with him no more. Now, this may and probably is the, and I'm pretty sure, is the only term in all of Scripture where the words disciple may refer to an unsaved person. Because he says that he knew that some of them did not believe, verse 64. And then it says some, many of his disciples turned and walked away and followed him no more. Uh, it shows us something about the term disciple, that the term disciple uh, is a little bit flexible, a little bit fluid. Again, should be interpreted by the context. In a very general sense, it means pupil or follower. But people can be a follower at different levels, right? A person can uh, attend a college simply as an, to audit a class. No commitments, just show up, no grade. Another person can sign up for the course with the intent of getting a grade. And then, you know, some professors offer a grade contract. You've heard of those. You do a certain amount of work, 
you get an A. You do this amount of work, you get a B. Some people sign up for the whole thing for an A and make a commitment. So there's different levels of commitment and following. This would, of course, be the lowest level because it didn't even keep them there. They turned and they walked away. By the way, how do you like Jesus' method of church growth? Thousands walk away and only 12 stay behind. That's an inevitable result of, of uh, preaching the gospel sometimes and going on to talk about discipleship is people walk away from it. When you tell them what they need to hear instead of what they want to hear. So many churches today are just telling people what they want to hear, trying to please everybody. And they're afraid of saying something offensive and people will not come and return. So there are many people in life that are curious, like this large group of people. But I want you to see that uh, the next group of people represented in the conversation that follows, these are those who are convinced. He turns then, after all these thousands of people walk away, in verse 67, he says to the twelve, Do you also want to go away? But Simon Peter answered him, Lord, to whom shall we go? You have the words of eternal life. Also, we have come to believe and know and surrender ourselves to you and commit our lives to you. No, he doesn't say that, does he? Checking to see if you're awake. We have come to believe and know that you are the Christ, the Son of the living God. We have faith in the objective person of Jesus Christ, and we have come to place our faith in him. That is Peter's declaration. Notice, first of all, that Peter is the spokesman for the group. He always seems to be the spokesman for the group. In my newsletter, I think I have a little article there about Peter and how I, I really believe, this is a whole other message I do, how Peter is a model of discipleship. And that's why we read so much about him. He always seems to be saying what everybody's thinking, saying what we're thinking many times as well. But here he declares his faith and shows that he is convinced about who Jesus is. Now, what the interesting thing is, is one time we know from John chapter 1 that Peter was among the curious. You remember the account of Peter uh, when he was first attracted to Christ in John chapter 1? Um, one of those who had, it says in verse 40, that one of those who had heard John the Baptist speak and followed him was Andrew, Simon Peter's brother. And he first found his own brother, Simon, and said to him, We found the Messiah, which is translated the Christ. And he brought him, Peter, to Jesus. And when Jesus looked at him, he said, You are Simon, the son of Jonah. You shall be called Cephas, which is translated a stone. Jesus knew there were better things in store for Peter. But Peter, at this point, hadn't believed, it seems. He just followed his brother out of curiosity to see what his brother was so excited about. And he's introduced to a person named Jesus. We don't know exactly when he believed, but by the time we come to John chapter 6, he obviously has, because we know and we believe that you're the Christ, the Son of the living God. So Peter has moved from being curious to convinced. At some point in life, you did too, because that's why you're here, and so did I. I've already told you that for me was 19, 1973. When a girl appealed to my curiosity, and she came up to me in, in, in the office, and you know, this was a girl who, we heard that she was going to come and work in our office, and we were saying, because we had been in a training session with her, and and she was moving across country to work in her office. Oh boy, this is going to be fun because she carried a Bible and she had a big smile on her face. And we said, well, this is going to be fun. We're going to be picking on her all summer, you know, the Bible beater. So she came, but she was such a sweet person. We ended up becoming good friends and everything. And one day she walks up to me and she said, Charlie, are you born again? 
I said, well, I was born in America. I was raised in such and such a church. No, that's what I mean. Are you born again? I said, well, okay, what do you mean? I don't know what you're talking about. And she began to show me Bible verses and give me things to read. And I took them home. My curiosity got the better of me. In 1973, I began to see that I had a need for Christ and a forgiveness. Uh, to received the gift of eternal life and, and uh, forgiveness of sins. My, my debt was paid. And I trusted in Christ as my Savior And uh, in the summer of 1973. And I became one of the convinced. And you have a similar testimony somewhere along the way. Where you move from being curious to convinced. But you know, God didn't finish with me yet. He wasn't finished with Peter yet either. That's why we read so much about Peter in the Gospels, because we see what Jesus is doing to him. That's an interesting point, because there's so many people in our country, maybe this is true in many other cultures, that think that coming to know Jesus as Savior is the end. Well, I've got my life, my eternal insurance policy. That's it. But it's not the end at all. It's the beginning. It's the beginning of a whole new life and a whole new set of challenges and things to do. An exciting life. So what Jesus begins to do with his disciples now as we depart from John chapter 6, we begin to see as we move through the gospel stories and historical accounts that Jesus challenges these disciples to a greater commitment. So it's not enough just to be convinced. Jesus wants them to move on to commitment. That's what he does with those who become convinced. For example, just turn over to John chapter 8, verse 31. Now, he had been preaching to the Jews and and, uh, trying to persuade them. In verse 30, it says that many believed in him. And then in verse 31, it says, Jesus said to those Jews who believed in him, If you abide in my word, you are my disciples indeed, or you are truly my disciples. And you shall know the truth, and the truth will make you free. Now, these had believed in him. It's clear. It says that. Okay? When the Bible says people have believed, it means they've believed, and it results in eternal life. But he says to those who now have eternal life, now what I want you to do is abide in my word. And that word abide means to continue in. It has a sense of remain in, uh, live in uh, close touch with it, obey it we could even say. Of course, this is not a condition for salvation. They've already been saved. It's not a condition for salvation, or it would be salvation by works. It's a condition for what? To really be a disciple, he says, to be a true disciple or a disciple indeed. So there are those who are curious, those who are convinced, and then those who are committed. And here Jesus is fishing for a stronger commitment from them to stay in that word of God and abide in it and live in it and follow it because that's going to set you free. It's going to keep you free from guilt. It's going to be keep you free from error, from going down the wrong paths in life. It's going to free you to do what God wants you to do and be all that God wants you to be. That's one of the conditions for discipleship we see. Um, a disciple, as I said, is a follower, a pupil. In Matthew chapter 10 and verse 25, it says it's enough that a, a, a disciple become like his teacher. The purpose of discipleship is to become like a teacher. And in order to do that, we have to follow our teacher. Um, You know, when Jesus said to the disciples along the seashore, follow me and I'll make you fishers of men. He was inviting them to follow them as disciples. These days, when we want to get an education or learn a trade, we sign up at a school, usually. And we don't know who the professor is going to be. All we know is that the course is an engineering course or a physics course or whatever. 
you sign up for a subject. In ancient times, they signed up for a person. They signed up to follow Rabbi Hillel or Rabbi Jesus with the idea that I'm going to follow him, I'm going to live with him, I'm going to eat with him, where he spends the night, we'll be there. When he gets up and teaches in the synagogues, we'll be next to him. And their lives will slowly begin to become like their teacher. That's what a disciple is, a pupil, a follower. And in the strongest sense of the word, someone who's committed in such a way. And what I want you to see from the distinction is that uh, from this is that there is a distinction between salvation and discipleship, between being convinced that Christ is the Savior and committed to Him as Lord. See, this all goes in a, in a roundabout way back to the, our whole discussion of what's the gospel and lordship salvation. There's a difference between um, salvation and discipleship. Let me just put on the board a few of these distinctions. Let's put salvation over here and then discipleship over here. Here we go. All right. Salvation has one condition, right? How about discipleship? Well, Jesus says, abide in my word. But can you think of anything else he said about how to be a disciple? Unless you take up your cross, deny yourself, follow me, uh, hate your mother and brother and sister, wife more than me. I mean, yeah, hate them and look. In other words, you've got to love me more than them. One condition, but in discipleship, there's many conditions. And what's that one condition in salvation? Believe. Let's put faith, because it works well with what I'm going to say over here. Discipleship depends on faith, but also faithfulness. Okay? In salvation, what is the doctrine uh, that we usually talk about when someone believes? They're saved in an instant in time, declared righteous, and we call that what? Justification. It's an instant event. Let's just say a, a one-time event. But what's the doctrine that says we need to continue to grow in Christ? Sanctification. If this is a one-time event, then discipleship's a lifetime process, right? We could go on and on with uh, comparisons. For example, in salvation, Jesus had to take up the cross. In discipleship, what does he say? We have to take up the cross, right? Us, we take up the cross. One simple way to think of this is, and this is very important to see this distinction, because when you approach certain passages in the Bible, if you don't see this distinction, what's going to happen? You're going to see these conditions, and as many people do, you're going to say, oh, those are conditions for salvation. And that's, this is what Lordship Salvation does. It says the conditions, deny yourself, take up your cross, follow me. That's how you get saved. Front-loading the gospel, right? And um, faithfulness to the end. Shows that you believed in Jesus. They're confusing sanctification with justification. What God expects in a lifetime, all front-loaded in the very beginning in our salvation. And so it helps you have an understanding of how to interpret so many Bible passages. You might, here's one simple way to refer to it. I call this A truth and this B truth. Okay? So when you interpret a passage of Scripture and you say, hmm, 
Is he talking about eternal life here? Is this A truth or is this B truth? You see? When he says, unless you lose your life for my sake, you won't find it. Or what shall a man gain if, uh, if he gives up the whole world and loses his own soul? If he gains the whole world and loses his own soul, what will he gain? Is that A truth or B truth in the context? I mean, there's so many passages that we apply this to. And there are many conditions of discipleship, and, and uh, we don't have time to go through them all. We mentioned some of them. Uh, you have to have a supreme love for Jesus. Be generous with, with your possessions. Um, serve others, he says. Uh, by this all men will know you're my disciples if you have love for one another. Let's look at Luke chapter 9, verse 23, just at those three, because they're all compacted in a nice little passage for us. Luke chapter 9 and verse 23. After he told them that he was going to die and suffer, suffer and die, then he tells the disciples, and there's a logical sequence to them, because he's saying, look, this is what it costs me to follow my Father's will. Now here's what's going to cost you to follow me. So he says in verse 23, he says to them, if anyone desires to come after me, now see, there's the term come after. Is this A truth or B truth? B truth. Come to is A truth. Come after is B truth. Come after, follow me is, is uh, two words he uses consistently for discipleship. Let him deny himself. What does that mean? Say no to yourself so that you can say yes to God. Deny yourself sinful temptations. Deny yourself sometimes your rights, your pleasures, your comforts in order to serve God. And take up his cross daily. What does that mean? I think it means to be willing to suffer for Jesus Christ because of your identity with him. The idea of the cross to those who heard it meant pain and suffering. That's what it meant for Jesus. Jesus said, are you willing also to endure pain and suffering for my sake? Now, Luke is the only one that says this, but he says it nonetheless. He says, take up his cross daily. We have to make a decision every day to identify ourselves with Jesus Christ. But by the way, when he says take up the cross daily, it's obviously be truth, right? It can't be a truth. You have to get saved every day by taking up your cross. And yet there are those who say consistently that this is a condition for salvation. And then he says, follow me. I think this just re refers to take up his purpose for your life. And the chief purpose for your life, is he says, follow me and I'll make you fishers of men. Let's get on board God's purpose of winning this whole world to Jesus Christ because it's the only thing that we can do in time that we can't do in eternity. So there are many conditions for discipleship and we can't confuse them with salvation. And it's very important to observe this distinction. It avoids, let me give you several reasons as we close. It avoids simplicity. It, it, it allows us to preach in order to uh, lead people to maturity. Uh, in, instead of telling them through all these so many different passages that you know you need to be saved again and take up your cross and be saved and deny yourself and be saved and follow Christ and be saved. It just you know, One time I was in, in a church and a friend visited our church and I said, hey, I thought you went to the other church. And he said, yeah, I did, but I'm not real happy with it. And I said, what's the matter? He said, well, I'm sick of the gospel. I said, what do you mean? He said, every Sunday we hear the same thing. You got to get saved, you got to get saved, you got to get saved. I know there's more to it than that. I want to learn. And what he's saying is, I am saved. It's not the end. I know it's the beginning of something, and now I want somebody to tell me what the Lord wants me to do next. And this is what God wants us to do next. He wants us to be disciples and commit ourselves to Him.
It helps us to keep our gospel clear because we're not mixing works in. And there are many, many, in fact, most of your passages in the Bible are discipleship passages because it's telling us how to live the Christian life. Another very important thing about this distinction is it builds accountability. It builds accountability. In other words, it says that uh, we are to be faithful and there are consequences, both positive and negative, if we are or are not. And this is where the whole teaching about uh, the judgment seat of Christ comes in. There are those who read about the judgment seat of Christ in 1 Corinthians 3, 2 Corinthians 5, Romans 14, and they say, uh, they even get the idea of purgatory out of that sometimes. Or they see that it is a judgment of our salvation. But it clearly says that it is a judgment of the works that we do in our body, whether good or bad. And we must all give an account at the judgment seat of Christ. And there we will be rewarded according to our deeds. The judgment seat of Christ is not a judgment of our salvation. It's a judgment of our faithfulness. It's a B-truth. This has been settled at the cross, right? And then the unbelievers are settled at the great white throne. The judgment seat of Christ is B-truth. It is where disciples are rewarded according to how they lived out their lives in a lifetime of faithfulness. So here we could introduce this whole idea of rewards and, and, and motivations for living the Christian life. And then I'd just say it keeps us challenged. It keeps us from sitting back and saying, well, going to heaven, that great. Now what should I do? Get on with life. No, it's the beginning of a new life. And when we study someone like Peter, we see that Jesus was constantly challenging him to be more of a disciple. And that's what my little paper shows in, the, in that newsletter. And I have a whole message on that. In fact, I have a whole series on that. <laughs> Each one of those little paragraphs is a sermon condensed. Jesus challenged Peter all through his life to follow him and uses those words, follow him. Even in John chapter 21, he uses it twice of Peter. You remember after his resurrection, he, uh, Jesus on the shore eats fish with Peter. And then they're walking along and uh, Peter... Um, I was talking to the Lord, and the Lord indicated the manner by which Peter was, would die. And he said, but Peter, follow me. Well, it's not an invitation to salvation, as many say. It's a B-truth. He's been saved. He's now seen the risen Lord. In fact, Peter says, looks over his shoulder, sees John. He says, what about this guy? <laughs> I'm going to die crucified. What about this guy? And Jesus basically says, none of your business, you follow me. There's a lesson in that. Jesus has an individual challenge for each of us where we are, according to our gifts, according to our ability, according to our ministry, according to our uniqueness. And he wants us to follow him. And what he's asking me to do today is different from what he's asking you to do today or this weekend. But we're all on a journey and we're all being challenged every day. And I like to say that there's a sense in which a disciple is always being challenged to be more of a disciple. It just never stops. It never stops. You can never say, I've made it. Because as soon as you do, Jesus says, well, what can we challenge you with today? How can you be more of a disciple? D.L. Moody used to be challenged by a saying he heard from a friend, which went something like this. The world has not yet seen what one man totally committed to Christ can do. 
And D.L. Moody used to say, by the grace of God, I am that man. And he tried to live his life that way. But I think the invitation is probably still a good one, that the world has not yet seen what one person totally committed to Christ can do. Idaho has not seen what one person totally committed to Christ can do. Canada has not seen what one person committed to Christ can do. Mexico, Panama has not seen what one person totally committed to Christ can do. And the world has not yet seen what someone totally committed to Christ can do. And I'll just close with a statement. Christians have never changed the world. Only disciples have. And there is a difference. Thank you for listening. For more resources, or to help spread the message of God's life-changing grace, visit our website at gracelife.org. We'd love to hear from you. Send us a message at simplybygrace at gracelife.org. See you next time.